Welcome to episode 39 of Sassmouth Dame's podcast. The first thing you should know about this picture is that Ernest Lubitsch said it was the hottest comedy script in Hollywood. It was the first production that he supervised from start to finish in his role as head of production for Paramount Studio. This picture was special before the camera started rolling. Thanks to the Lubitsch touch as producer and Mitch Lyson's direction, Hands Across the Table became a hit that confirmed Carol Lombard's stardom in Hollywood. Anyone who thought 20th Century was a once-off success for Carol, based on the presence of Howard Hawks and John Barrymore, had not seen anything yet. By the time Lombard made Hands Across the Table, she was so adept at comedy, a talent that she had been honing since her time as a Max Sennett bathing beauty, that she became Fred McMurray's acting coach for the picture. Fred said that he owed his entire performance to her mentorship. This was the first of four pictures she made with Fred McMurray, and while all of them are good, I'd argue that this one is the best because it has a keen balance of screwball comedy tempered with dramatic resonance. But also do seek out The Princess Comes Across from 1936, Swing High, Swing Low, and True Confession, both from 1937. You can find all of their pictures at that Russian website. You can find by Googling the titles with OK.RU. The best part of Fred McMurray's performance in Hands Across the Table is the way he surprises Carol Lombard, the way he goes out of his way to charm and delight her. Because he earns Carol's regard, he's Jake with us. Fred McMurray needs to gain more recognition for playing romantic figures who are complex, warts and all. He doesn't give us the blemish-free versions of ideal masculinity that audiences get with William Powell as the saintly Godfrey, or Cary Grant in Bringing Up Baby. He's flawed, but he's still a swoon merchant. On Carol's part, when she gives over inspired moments of awkwardness, she never overplays a gag. Carol opens herself to the camera to come in close and feel what she feels. She can turn up the emotional temperature from madcap, dial it down to winsome, or all the way down to despondent, quicker than she can toss that coin on the top of the double-decker bus at the end of this picture. And the film keeps the focus on Carol, as it should be, unlike in Swing High, Swing Low, when we lose her in the third act to follow Fred's lacrimose decline in the trappings of fame. I want to see Carol in every scene. Not since Gloria Swanson's Manhandled have we seen a funnier scene set in the morning subway commute. The throngs of passengers are held back by both a gate and a policeman to control the mad dash for a spot on the subway car. The press of shoulders is so great that Carol Lombard and Marie Prevost are nearly pushed back onto the subway as they attempt to alight in Midtown. Marie Prevost takes a moment to lament her crushed little hat, a little number with a comical fake daisy. Marie's character Nona talks about numerology and looks for portents in numerical combinations. When you haul your ass on the subway every day to scrape and polish men's hands, a dame looks for the exit sign wherever she can find one. Carol plays a manicurist named Reggie. She works with Marie in a barber shop located in the foyer of an exclusive hotel in New York City. 
Carol's Reggie keeps her eyes peeled for rich customers. She joins like-minded Sassmouth dames of the, of the Depression who take the quickest route out of a cold-water walk-up by looking for a man with a thick wallet. A blonde with a ticket punched bigger and better things, Reggie wants to marry for security, not for love. It's funny how when we see women as manicurists in women's pictures from the classic studio era, their customers are usually men. If women hope to marry up, it's a good guess that the men who pay to have their nails done aren't standing in a breadline afterwards. Joan Bennett in Big Brown Eyes from 1936 and Joan Blondell and Glenda Farrell in Kansas City Princess from 1935 are among the women who polish the paws of men for a living, and they all wear stylish uniforms which would fly off the rails if they were stocked in a shop today. Clothes hold a great significance in women's pictures, and especially so in a Mitch Lyson production. First, there's the uniform that Carol wears to work in the barbershop. It has a wide ca- collar that extends over her shoulders. The dress looks crisp and makes her look ready for business. This is one frock among many from the Depression era where women's service workers look stylish and ready for business. The key to making a good uniform is that starch collar and a nice cuff, an interesting button or design flair, and above all, fit, fit, fit. They complement a woman's physique and make her look sturdy enough and still look good at the end of an eight-hour shift. After a chance meeting with a scamp playing hopscotch in the hotel corridor, Carol lands a client with a society name. She doesn't have much time to prepare, but advised by the manager, Laura, played by the delightful Ruth Donnelly, she pretends to read a magazine article about polo. Laura reasons that rich people are all crazy about polo, so it's a sin she can impress Theodore Drew III with that as her opening gambit. One of Carol's funniest bits occurs when Fred, as Ted Drew III, walks in for a manicure. She draws blood over and over again. She can't keep her mind on her work when she's putting on the lady act. She's nervous and fumbles with the instruments. She slices into delicate skin as though the barber shop were in the little shop of horrors. By the time Ted leaves, his fingers are all wrapped in plasters. It looks as though he put them in a meat grinder. When he approaches Ruth Donnelly at the counter to settle up, she takes one look at the carnage and says, no charge, no charge. Despite the blood loss, Fred still got her to accept an invitation to go out that evening. Since she believes he's a millionaire, she consults her bank book and then spends nearly every penny for a makeover. She goes to a salon to have her hair done, buys an expensive frock and a darling hat. If it kills her, she's going to make sure that he forgets the sight of her in that uniform, even if it was super cute. Carol Lombard stops in front of the same window on her way to work each day. Sometimes she's with Marie Prevost. She pauses long enough with a look of the covets, which tells the viewer that her best intentions are set. The shop front display is like a mood board. It reminds Reggie of her purpose. The women both sigh over the stylish clothes on display. It's an open vista to another kind of life. Her uniform is adorable, but she wants something long, floaty, and dramatic. When she pauses to look through the window, it gives her a moment of reflection, a chance to remind herself that she's not long for dipping nails in soapy water. The beautiful clothes orient Reggie Allen's purpose like a compass for true north. 
At the end of her date with Ted, Reggie thinks it's one for the books, but it's riddled with questionable moments long before he turns ugly in the taxi cab at the end of the night. Remember when Joan Crawford said all men are the same in a taxi cab during Our Blushing Brides? There's some element in the truth will out in the back seat. Ted arrives more than an hour late to pick her up. When he finally does show up, he doesn't offer an apology or an explanation, nor does he give her any compliments about her expensive new frock and super cute hat. He takes her out to dinner of onion soup, which wouldn't have been so bad if he had only confessed that he didn't have the price of a dinner in his pocket. Worst of all, he greedily swipes drinks unattended on the nightclub tables belonging to the patrons on the dance floor. He gulps them down. Never mind that it looks like the absence of good manners. He's setting himself up for hepatitis or the flu. My skin crawls just thinking about his mouth on random strangers' glasses, and he thinks he might get a kiss at the end of the night? Marie Prevost Nona had yelled after Carol as she left on the date, don't forget to be refined. And here she is stuck with a sloppy drink thief. Then in the taxi, he's steaming drunk on the stolen drinks. He offers to see her again the day after he's married. Then he thinks better of that and revises the offer to meet them because, quote, they all want honeymoons, he says. There's a palpable derision in his voice, a disregard for women, in vino veritas, that is chilling. His mask slips. He resents the role he has to play in dating and marriage. Carol's face crumples. When she's upset, it's really the only time the scar on her cheek becomes visible, like later when she's on the rooftop telling him why they can't get married. Who can blame her for wanting him out of her flat before she leaves for work the next morning? But Fred redeems himself. He has a list of surprises in store for Reggie. Chief among them is the fact that he may come from society, but his family lost their fortune in the stock market. He doesn't want Carol to marry for money like he has decided to do, because he's just a heel. Ted also surprises Reggie by pretending to be her husband when a day comes calling, the unsuspecting man played by William Demarest. Ted takes her in the other room and pretends to smack her around. Carol's grin spreads out to her ears as she watches him smack his own hand and say, That'll learn ya. Their fake domestic violence is delightful because it's fake and they have so much fun with it. He rings her at work to ask about his dinner prep. He's so funny and self-effacing. He gives very good telephone. There's so much intimacy and anticipation built up in their conversation. He jokes about having overboiled the lamb chops. She corrects him and screams that she told him to broil the chops. When mention is made of the eggplant, he tells her he couldn't find the zipper and she'll have to show him how to open it later. Ted's so breezy, and yet he's clearly telling her that he can't wait until they are together again. I like this scene set around the phone even more than the one when they pull the hoax from Bermuda. What a treat it is for a woman in work to hear a man busy in the kitchen getting dinner on the table. Then in a downpour, he waits in a taxi for her so she won't get drenched. He used some gallant logic about pawning his overcoat to pay for the fare and also to purchase groceries. Since he's missed the boat, Ted finagles her couch for the duration of his holiday in Bermuda. In order to soothe the Hayes office and skirt the production code, Reggie responds to his offer and says she's not that unconventional. 
Ted reasons, what are conventions anyway? Just a bunch of salesmen sitting around and telling stories. And their first big set piece, for the scene when Ted needs to ring his fiancée, Mitch Lyson uses a nice floral motif that builds from Marie Prevost's crushed daisy in the opening scene. Carol unwraps a floral delivery from the rich man whom she manicures, played by Ralph Bellamy. He hasn't sent her orchids or a bouquet of roses, those expensive flowers men use to seduce women. Instead, Ralph Bellamy sends a thoughtful box of daffodils. His card says they remind him of Carol's Reggie Allen. Fred McMurray picks up the cue and finishes the compliment meant for Carol by saying the flowers are like her, tall and blonde. Had Ralph Bellamy stood any chance in Hades of winning Carol, the choice of flowers might have sealed the deal. When they cook up a gag to phone his fiancée Vivian and make her think he's really in Bermuda on her father's ticket, as he was supposed to be, instead of couch surfing in Carol's flat, he holds one of the daffodils as though it were a magic wand. Fred clutches at the daffodil and uses it for emphasis. In reality, he has the willowy blonde in the palm of his hands at that very moment. He goads Carol into pretending she's the long-distance operator, connecting the call from Park Avenue to Bermuda. Carol pinches her nose as though she were going to dive into the East River and comes out with an inspired operator staccato rhythm. They egg each other on to be more ridiculous. Carol interrupts the woman with, Bermuda calling, Bermuda calling, each time Vivian tries to get in a word edgewise. Carol and Fred are falling all over each other, unable to keep a straight face. In this brief scene, we see the importance Mitch Lyson pays to set design. He always started a production with getting the set done first so he could lay the bones of the story with the space the characters would inhabit. His sets told the viewer all they needed to know about the people in the story. We only see Vivian's telephone booth in her posh house for this scene, but it tells us everything about Ted's fiance, played by Astrid Alwyn. When the call comes through from Bermuda, the maid is trying on one of Vivian's fur coats, classic Mitch Lyson. That could be in any one of his pictures. I hear the voice of Jean Arthur saying, you don't know what a fur coat means to a girl who never even owned a tippet. The maid goes to answer the telephone, but the butler intercepts her and assumes his authority to pick up the call. He ceremoniously opens the door to a glass box, an in-home telephone booth, the size which exceeds many powder rooms. Who am I kidding? It looks bigger than my first flat share. The idea is pretty absurd, that you have this grand palace, but you need an enclosed space to have privacy when someone rings you. Inside the enormous glass box is a long leather banquette, a huge floral arrangement. It's high-end luxury, not strewn with cigarette butts and wads of discarded chewing gum. It's so large, you could raise crops in it to alleviate the Dust Bowl tragedy. It's mad. It's luxurious. It's bonkers. I love it so much. Pure Mitch Lyson genius. His gigantic glass box is the essence of spoiled rich girl excess. Critics who say Mitch Lyson is all style and no substance can take a flying leap. His style is truth and beauty rolled into one. Each scene is a mood and a look and a character and a theme. Viewers know Carol Lombard hasn't set her sights on Ralph Bellamy, not only because she refers to him as her best friend, but because she's totally herself with him. 
She doesn't put on any act to be a lady or play the role she thinks men want as a wife. She remarks about his sudden interest in fashionable dressing gowns. When women comment on a man's attempt to impress them or make themselves over, it's a way of putting off or distancing the effort. She calls attention to the obvious courtship, which nullifies the effect. If she were interested, she would have kept the comment to herself rather than let him know she was on to his moves. Reggie Allen doesn't put on her lady voice or pretend to have his interests in common, as she does when she lies about an interest in polo when Fred McMurray sat down at her station. She doesn't draw blood on Ralph Bellamy either. Reggie also pockets his $10 tips. Their client-beautician relationship is clearly defined. She doesn't flatter him, batter lashes, or try to play damsel in distress. True, she does that nervous bit with him while she's trying to pour the tea, but that stems from class consciousness rather than the awkwardness that comes from sexual attraction. Reggie Allen has coffee written all over her, strong and hearty, just like she is. She doesn't have the money or the time to buy and maintain a fancy tea set. She has beans in a pot on the stove that she can reheat any time of the day. So she doesn't know that you have to hold the lid on the teapot, how long it needs to steep, or when you add the sugar and lemon. To Reggie, it's an unknown, the whole business of afternoon tea. She doesn't get a break for anything other than lunch during the day. Just like she won't join Ralph Bellamy for a cocktail during her morning visit, she wouldn't think of afternoon tea. She's honest about her desire to marry up, so that's why she can joke about sitting on the penthouse terrace when she quips, I wonder what the poor poor people are doing. Ralph Bellamy is her playmate, not her potential husband. I've never liked him more than in this role. I swoon when he sticks his mitts in a potted plant to lodge some soil under his nails so he can justify his Reggie's visit. When she first enters his hotel suite, Ralph Bellamy explains that he avoids meeting new people because they always feel sorry for him since he's in a wheelchair. Carol had reacted to his chair when she first entered, but then she realized how insensitive it was to react to a chair and not the man inside of it. She tells him, though, that she doesn't feel sorry for him. What, when you have all this? You just try getting up every morning at 7, then jammed in the subway, then poking at people's cuticles all day, then jammed back in the subway again at night. I don't feel sorry for you, mister. At one point, they exchange lines that could appear verbatim in any woman's picture set during the Depression. It holds a constant truth. Bellamy's character, Alan Macklin, says to her, You think a lot about money, don't you, Reggie? She isn't chastened as he may have expected. She's pragmatic. When you have it, you don't have to think about it. She tells him the truth about her designs on marriage. She watched her mother grow old and ugly through the strain of poverty. Ground down into a shrew, her father did all he could to stay away. Reggie refuses to have the same dreary fate. She has a plan. Screwball needs a leavening agent, a shift in emotional pitch. If you try to play every scene as zany madcap, the audience wearies of the tempo. A good screwball will always include a dramatic element. The one that leaves me gutted occurs on their last night together, when he's supposed to return from the so-called trip to Bermuda. Carol goes to her bedroom, claiming an early start. She hides there, pacing. Neither can sleep. When they meet accidentally on the rooftop, she reasons with him. 
He will hate her in time. He will always know that he could have been rich if he hadn't been foolish enough to marry her. Ted can't convince her otherwise. Fred's wearing a dressing gown that looks as dapper as anything Ralph Bellamy wore for her manicure appointments. Reggie returns to her bedroom. But then as she's pacing her room, viewers can see the way she turns it over in her mind. She stops pacing and her eyes brighten, which signals that she's changed her mind. Meanwhile, Fred had quietly dressed and left the flat without saying goodbye. She rushes out of her room to say yes. The words are in her mouth as she looks around her little flat for him. We can anticipate Carol's words that she'll say, let's get married anyway. The white cat, though, is in the spot on the sofa looking satisfied. Carol runs out to the roof. She looks down and sees Fred across the street with a jaunty step. He exchanges words with the milkman. From her position, Fred looks untroubled and carefree as though he's already moved on and is already with his fiancée. Carol looks over the ledge with the unsaid words heavy on her tongue. He's gone, and she looks like a lonely bird in a rooftop cage. Viewers need the intense moment of her despair to prepare for the finale. Norman Krasna, the screenwriter, was unique in his field by usually writing on his own, although he collaborated with the producers, directors, and stars to give results that made everyone happy. In an interview, he said that Hollywood had paid him well, so accommodating their ideas on a script was part of the bargain for services rendered. He compared it to sex work, if I'm not being indelicate. Throughout Krasna's career, he used a theme of mistaken identity, which also features in Hands Across the Table. He first explored the theme in The Richest Girl in the World, a picture from 1934, starring Miriam Hopkins. Krasna received his first nomination for an Academy Award for Best Script for The Richest Girl in the World, and he was only 22 years old then. The theme of mistaken identity appealed to Krasna as a perennial question of the human condition. Am I loved for who I truly am? He wondered if a woman could really love him if she only knew what he did in Hollywood or his reputation. He confessed that it was something he could never really be sure of and always haunted him. After all, he was a young man who used to sell shoes in Macy's and then launched into a meteoric rise to occupy the center ring of wealth and influence in Hollywood. The same applies here for sassmouth dames who want to marry for security. Do you love the man or the money? At the heart of screwball comedy, it must be for love. Looking at Marie Prevost in this picture, it's hard to believe she would be gone just two years later, dead at the age of 38. Like Carol, she was a Max Senate bathing beauty, although she started much earlier in 1917. One day, Max Senate was trying to get her to do a gag by falling off a pier with comic fanfare. Marie pushed him into the drink and said if it was so funny, why not let him do it? And like Carol, Marie Provost was also a favorite of Ernest Lubitsch. She starred in The Marriage Circle, Three Women, and Kiss Me Again, three of his best American silent pictures. As she grew older, she was hectored about her figure by the studios. Barbara Stanwyck jokes about her weight in one of Marie's best pictures, Ladies of Leisure, that they did together in 1930. But it was no joke in reality for Marie. Hoping to lose weight for studio approval, she stopped eating, but didn't stop drinking whiskey. She died of malnutrition. Joan Crawford took care of Marie's funeral expenses, perhaps since Marie was cast in Joan's breakout dramatic role paid in 1930. 
I'll close the episode with an excerpt from David Chirichetti's Mitch Lyson, Hollywood Director. Light comedy is a state of mind. You can't really direct it. The actors just have to feel it. Fred had a natural flair for comedy, but he was terribly shy in those days, and he was afraid to try anything. We really had to draw it out of him, and Carol was a great help there. She worked as hard as I did to get that performance out of him. She had none of what you might call the star temperament. She felt that all the others had to be good or it wouldn't matter how good she was. She got right in there and pitched. One day, I caught her sitting on top of Fred, pounding on his chest with her fist, saying, Now, Uncle Fred, you be funny or I'll pluck your eyebrows out. Fred had been a sax player with some band. Where he got all this talent from, I have no idea. But sooner or later, he came through on everything. Once in a while, something would bog him down. But change the line a little or change the movement, and you could get him around the problem. Fred knew instinctively how scenes should be played, and once he was sure of himself, he started to suggest things. When he would say, what if I do such and such? Then he went out and did it. Then I knew we were in business. Fred had another director, I forget who it was, who drove him crazy telling him every little movement to make. He tried to do it like that, and all of the naturalness went right out of it. If the director had just let him work it out by himself, Fred would have turned into a great job with no problems. The director must free the actor with the movements he gives them. The actors must feel comfortable and not be inhibited. There are lines they can walk on and others they can't possibly make any move on. The main problem with Fred in those days was he didn't project much sex, aside from being very good looking. In the scene when he says, aren't you going to kiss me goodnight? Carol was supposed to walk in and kiss him, then walk out of the frame. Well, she came past the camera, just looked at me and shrugged her shoulders as if to say, so what? Poor Fred. I'm sure Fred has the first dollar he ever made. In those days, the men were supposed to wear their own clothes in the modern dress pictures, but Fred didn't seem to have much of a wardrobe. He and I were exactly the same size, so I let him use my clothes in several of the pictures we did. When I asked him why he didn't get some of his own, I found out that he hadn't even cashed his payroll checks. He was certain he wouldn't last as a movie actor, and he wanted to be some money ahead. To me, an actor is hopeless if he hasn't got a sense of timing. There's just no way you can give it to him if he doesn't already have it. I've even tried to have them count one, two, three, and say the line, but it never worked. Lombard was superb. She could time it to a breath. Jean Arthur had a fantastic sense of timing. So did Colbert. McMurray developed a wonderful sense of timing, and Milan did too once he did comedy. Timing is a feeling of rhythm. You know how long to wait to come in with the next line or when to cut into someone else's line. You never hear two people speaking without one of them cutting in on the other because he's already caught the thought. The sound men and the cutters always wanted you to give them a pause between sentences so they'd have a place to make a cut. I'd say, wait a minute, fellows, somewhere in that sentence there is a little pause and you can make the cut there. You don't have to cut at the end of a sentence, and you don't always have to be on the same person that's talking. You can hear their voices off screen and then cut back after they've said a few words. You have to know how to use business, too. When I say business, I mean action that fits the scene or that plays against the scene but keeps it alive. They're doing something. They're not just standing there talking. There was one scene in Hands Across the Table that was just plot. It was information and nothing else. It went on page after page, and we needed it to tell the story. 
So what can we do to disguise it a little? As it starts, I have Carol carrying a bag, a bag of groceries. The sack of sugar drops and breaks, and she's cleaning up the mess of sugar on the floor as they're talking. Meanwhile, he's lying down in the other room eating chocolates. It suggests quietly that she's vulnerable, and he's unconcerned. That was a plot scene, and the plot can get deadly dull, unless you disguise it somehow. Let the audience catch the points of the story, but don't throw it in their faces. You have to use the actor's spontaneous reactions, too. I think the long-distance telephone scene was one of the funniest things, where Carol pretends to be the nasal Bermuda operator. Her constant interruption, Bermuda calling, Bermuda calling, establishes a rhythm in that scene. When they finished the take, Carol and Fred collapsed on the floor in laughter. They laughed until they couldn't laugh anymore. It wasn't in the script, but I made sure the cameras kept turning and I used it in the picture. It's so hard to make actors laugh naturally, I wasn't about to throw that bit out. Hands Across the Table is a good example of another important point. You must create the right atmosphere to bring a sense of reality to the mind of the audience. The barber shop where Carol works was a tremendous set with seven barbers going. The lobby outside was in constant action. It was all real. Her apartment wasn't plush. I just wanted to show that she had a certain amount of taste. As a manicurist with the tip she was getting, she could afford a place like that. Ralph Bellamy's suite in the hotel with the map and the model plane shows right away that he's interested in aviation. You don't hit the audience over the head with it, but it's there. From Fred McMurray. I never set out to be an actor at all. I was a sax player with a few lines in Roberta on Broadway when Paramount tested me and sent me out on a stock contract. I sat around for months doing nothing and finally RKO borrowed me for a grand old gal with Mae Robson. Then I did the Gilded Lily for Wes Ruggles, and I had no idea of what I was supposed to be doing at all. Before Hands Across the Table started shooting, I was called into the still gallery to do the usual poses with Carol Lombard, whom I'd never met. I felt extremely awkward embracing this woman I didn't know. She did everything she could to make me feel more at ease. That evening, I went to Lily, who later became my wife, and she said, well, how'd it go with Carol Lombard? I said, I'd never heard so much profanity from anybody, man or woman. Lily said, other than that, what's she like? I said, she's wonderful. Carol and Lily later became very good friends. Carol always said her language was a holdover from her days with Max Sennett. After a while, you got used to it, so it sounded perfectly natural. I owe so much of that performance and my subsequent career to her. She worked with me on every scene. The first scene we shot had me playing hopscotch on the linoleum of the hotel when Carol walks by. Now, that's something I would never do myself in a million years, but Carol coached me through it, and somehow I got through it. Thanks so much for listening. Join me next time when I talk about Evelyn Keyes in The Prowler from 1931.